Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice area of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersections of law, human behavior, and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, Forensic Psychologist and Clinical Director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I'm a licensed psychologist, please note that information discussed and presented on this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it a substitute for medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. Also, these episodes are not a substitute for clinical supervision. Please continue to rely on your supervisor's guidance and seek appropriate consultation. Lastly, any cases discussed on this show are always de-identified. back with another episode but this is like extra special today because it's gonna be like a reverse interview I actually met my current guest about um a couple hours ago and we decided collectively that we were gonna just record this as a podcast interview so we could share this with other students that have the same kind of questions so I want to welcome Caroline Campama to the podcast she is a graduate student at the Chicago School in the Forensic Society program. And she's going to actually be interviewing me with a couple questions she has in fulfillment for a class assignment. So welcome, Caroline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of I'm, excited to, <laughs> I'm excited to get started. Yes, of course. So I get asked to do these interviews quite often. So I'm really glad that we can put this out on the air and Hopefully, this um, will help other students as well get the answers they're seeking. So, you're on the spot. I guess I'm on the spot, but go ahead. Let's start with your first question. Okay. Uh, so, the first question is going to be, um, what is your theoretical orientation? So, I love that question. When I used to practice uh, clinically, I would have a, an amazing answer for you guys. But, as a forensic psychologist, I... Uh, tend to be a little bit a little bit more eclectic which just means I draw from various theories and I can tell you oh did you are you still there Caroline I think I yeah oh good okay sorry I closed my computer screen it happens oh it's okay sometimes but I like to um I, I really favor attachment theory so I I, I really enjoy um, kind of analyzing my cases and summing up my opinions using attachment theory, which is pretty much just focused on like the relationships and bonds between uh, caregivers, parents, and children, or just people in general. But when I, uh, like I said, when I work on my juvenile cases or even my adult cases, and there's a long history, let's say, of like trauma, I like to think of it in terms of like what happened um, with attachment and what kind of attachment style do these people have and how is that impacting their behavior? So, but I do, I do draw on other theories. Um, I do like cognitive behavioral uh, therapy type theories like cognitive behavioral theories where, wherein they, it primarily says that your thoughts influence your feelings or your emotions, which then influence your behavior. So I, I draw in, in multiple theories to answer your question. That's good to know, because I think as a early grad student, I am kind of learning all of the theories at once and oh. feel like I need to pick one. So it's good to know that a mixture is okay in the field. Absolutely. You don't have to be married to just one. That's good. <laughs> all right. Um, the next question is, uh, what is the population that you are currently serving? So the population I currently serve are justice-involved individuals. I work both with um, juvenile attorneys and adult attorneys. And in forensic work, we are considered neutral third parties. So the person we're evaluating is not actually our client. The court is our client or the attorney, the person um, retaining us. So my population, in essence, is are juveniles involved in the justice system, delin juvenile delinquency system, or juvenile justice system, as we refer to, and adults also in the criminal justice system. 
Um, and then what are the specifics to what you do? The specifics. There's many specifics, but let me just broadly overview the specifics. Um, so as a forensic psychologist, I'm asked to answer psycholegal questions involving both minors and adults. So that could be things such as, let's say, is John Doe competent to stand trial? Or does John Doe or Jane Doe meet the legal criteria for insanity? And then that requires me to do a comprehensive evaluation and assessment with that individual. Sometimes that does include administering various psychological tests or cognitive tests. And then talking to family members, maybe treatment providers, reviewing records, analyzing all the data, putting it together in a report, a very thorough, legally defensible report, and sending it back to either the court or the attorney. Got it. I feel like you summed that up very well. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> that is a broad overview of the specifics. Yeah, it's a tough question, but I feel like you did a great. Um, all right. So this question, I, I really feel like it resonates with me, especially because I think as a woman, I think this is an important question. So it, it is, uh, what barriers did you encounter when you first started your career? Very important question. And in fact, you know what? You will want to stay tuned for a episode that probably will drop in December, maybe late December, just depends. But I am actually conducting a roundtable with three other female forensic psychologists. And we are going to talk about just what you mentioned, barriers and some a lot of other things too, like safety measures for females, working mothers in forensic psychology. I mean, we're going to touch on we're going to touch on all the things, so stay tuned. But I will give you a sneak peek into that because that will be its whole own episode. Um, some of the barriers that I personally encountered going through undergrad, grad school on my journey, right, practicum, um, internship, I think for me early on it probably was access to uh, better education. That was the first and f- first, uh, very first barrier. Uh, I had to work really hard. I ha- came from I came from a family where you know we we my, my parents were divorced and I kind of lived in two households and then there was some you know of course every family has their dysfunction but there were some stressors too going on so school was um, secondary to taking care of some of those stressors sometimes so um, if you're not you know performing at the top of the top of the top right in your class then your access to you know, better education might be limited. So um, that was a little bit of a barrier, but with a good support system in place, I was able to go to college uh, at a decent school, I thought, and, or I think, as I know, I, I'm pretty sure I love my school, so. Um, but uh, getting into college and then um, accessing, I think, the next barrier I hit was um, accessing, uh, I would say, sites, treatment, uh, treatment sites, um, practicum sites or, or what people refer to as maybe internships. Uh, competi- it's very competitive. And so you're competing against kids, I call them kids, all across, <laughs> all across the United States, right, that come from all kinds of different backgrounds that may have had more advantage than I or less advantage of I because uh, there are times where I probably had more advantage than others. So, um, But I, I did notice sites were competitive and you had to have access to those opportunities and sometimes – I didn't have access necessarily to all those opportunities that others did, but I did not let that stop me. I knocked on every door. I I sought out every opportunity I could to maybe buffer my application in other ways, like with experience as opposed to maybe attending um, like an Ivy League school or getting like a, uh, actually I can't say that. My internship was AP accredited after I left. They were going through accreditation process, so I'm very thankful for that, but I still sought out extra opportunities, so there's some barriers there and then of course um you know people that didn't have other responsibilities so I know a lot of the I can't speak for this for myself but I know some of my classmates and my colleagues that were working moms at the time of going through grad school or um, internship year they weren't able just to pick up and move 
across the country if they matched at an internship site there. And so their their opportunities were l- very limited. And that's I'm so grateful for my situation, I guess, at the time because I wasn't married, I didn't have kids, and I, I was very blessed to be able to, I guess, just pick up and move and, and go where I matched. But I also matched here locally at home, so... I didn't have to, but I did apply. I did apply to other other sites that were in different states, and I just remember hearing some of my classmates saying, like, they wish they could do that, and that um, that was a bummer for them. And you know, uh, sites are limited. There's there's a limited number of sites, and sometimes there's more students applying to sites than there are sites available or spots available at sites across the country, and that's that's really a barrier for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I think I think you bring up a good point. Just overall having I I went community college and worked my way up mm-hmm. and haven't stopped pretty much since I started so I understand having to really kind of scrounge together what you can for making your applications look good but I th- I agree with a good support system like within your family or your friends or for me it was a lot of the professors I had at school I felt like they really helped me and pushed me through so yeah yes they are part of the support system like mentors in college and grad school absolutely um all right let's see what are we okay um I guess this is actually pretty relevant to what we just talked about it how did you balance the academic work personal lifestyle I'm still trying to figure that one out you and me both and some of my (laughs) colleagues it's it's an ongoing it's ongoing um but what I would say in grad school at least I really focused on just my grad school work and my experience so even my outside school experience that was going to help me get better practicum sites, uh, better internship sites. So I did volunteer work in grad school, and I think that also helped me get some real-life experience working with justice-involved individuals. I worked at a group home for quite some time, which got me exposed to that population before I even went to a practicum site that had that population. So very helpful. I eliminated anything that was unnecessary that wasn't serving my goals. And that was hard because, you know, friends want to hang out and family wants to see you. And sometimes I had to make that choice of I'm going to have to sacrifice going to see my family an extra day because I need that day to study or prep for dissertation. Dissertation was huge. I had to make lots of sacrifices. I don't know if I saw my family during Thanksgiving of dissertation here, to be honest. I locked myself in a room. But I, I just had to make those sacrifices because I knew me. I wasn't, I personally wasn't very good at like, okay, let me do four hours here with my family and then I'll do two hours of studying here and then two hours after. I'm the person that needs the block of time. So I just knew, you know, how I worked and what sacrifices I had to make. But it wasn't easy at all and it's ongoing. So I did work as well in grad school. I worked up until, gosh, I, I think it was my, pre-doc year, my internship year. So I worked, I did practicum, which you're there like two days a week, sometimes three, grad school work, dissertation, and working. That was my life. I didn't have time for anything else, unfortunately. I didn't have time for friends. I did not have time for a social life. I didn't do anything. Again, unfortunately, I wish I could have found that balance, but it's just what worked for me because I I knew – I know how I learned. I knew that back then. And I, like I said, I'm the kind of person that needs to reread something multiple times. I'm not like um, a person that reads it once and I'm like, oh, okay, and it sinks in. It's just the way I learn. Reputation. Jeez. I'm having an interesting talking day. I did this on the last episode. Um, repetition was very helpful for me. So it's just knowing how to, how you best work and then how integrate your goals into that but now you know after grad school I want to share <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel um, after I got licensed probably though after I got licensed then I started incorporating a little bit more of a social life and then when I went into private practice I did the same thing I did in grad school I had to pull back a little bit because it was a huge 
learning curve in terms of learning how to run a business because it's not just going out and doing the evaluations. There's a ton of other things like I have to approve payroll for my staff. Wait, I have staff? Like, oh, I have to provide supervision to them. Oh, and I need to do team meetings and all the things. Like, oh, my bookkeeper. I have a bookkeeper? Oh, yes, you have a bookkeeper. Because <laughs> I don't know how to balance books. I mean, I know how to balance books, but I don't know the ins and outs and the nitty-gritties of QuickBooks. I know the basics. I made sure I knew how to run my money. But, again, something I had to teach myself, so I had to pull back on social life. So it's like it's a give and take. And you feel it when you're not balanced. You, If you're putting all your effort energy into work, I've, I've definitely felt that. I've had those swings. And I've said to myself, self, we need to pull back. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you know, being in touch and in tune with yourself and then deciding how you're going to make that adjustment. But it is like a, it's a dance, you know. It's a dance you do with yourself. And you talk to your colleagues. I, I found the greatest outlet for me was talking to my colleagues and seeing how they're doing it and bouncing ideas off each other. Yeah. That, that was a I, very long-winded answer for your question. But. <laughs> no, that's fine. I find it all very helpful because <laughs> I really don't know any other any difference. But I agree. I found once I was able to connect with my cohort, that helped so much because you don't feel so, so alone in all the overwhelming tasks you suddenly have to take on. But right? that's it's good to know that that you know it's not you're not the only one having to having to balance I think for me it's giving myself permission to be okay with focusing on myself and knowing that I'm investing in my future right now and that Mm -hmm. it's more important to make some of those sacrifices for the long run so I think that's I think that's a really good point that you made and yes that's a very good takeaway because you're on the right, uh, the right path, you know, and it's just a rite of passage. You've lots of sacrifice. We always hear, I think, more commonly, we hear the medical doctors say how much of a sacrifice medical school was, and it is. Going to get your PhD or your PsyD is equally as sacrificing. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You you don't really hear about for especially the PsyD. I feel like that gets really kind of hidden away <laughs> in the field yeah. yeah so that's yeah I agree um let's see uh this is this is an interesting question so given the current state and climate of society what changes do you think need to be made in the mental health field I'm gonna give it a very unconventional un- probably unpopular answer to this one um and maybe not so I, I don't know uh, that's why I'm going to have a roundtable about these kind of things. Because, see, I want to talk to my colleagues, too, and, and have them share their opinions. But I think um, some things that need to be changed in the mental health field, if you're talking about what comes to mind for me is talking about professionals. And I would love to see us mental health professionals, um, for one thing, start talking a little bit about how to run a business. Um we don't talk about money a lot, and I think that's detrimental to us because we don't know how to run a business, and many of us burn ourselves out, including therapists, not just forensic psychologists. Um, so I think we need to talk, be a little bit more open about um, sharing that kind of information. Um, if we're talking about in the field, I think um, us talking a little bit more openly to about mental health and sharing information, kind of like how it's being shared now on social channels a little bit more, like Instagram and TikTok. I love all of the information that therapists and psychologists are putting out there. However, I think sometimes at some point it does border causing maybe some people some unnecessary anxiety. So, for example... Lots of therapists, right, put out, um, and psychologists, they, they put out um, these posts on Instagram, I've seen it a lot, or TikTok videos, like, here are five signs that you have ADHD. Someone may say, oh, I've got all those, I must have ADHD, and then it starts this, they go down this downward spiral down a rabbit hole, right? 
I don't think that's what's intended by the Instagram post or the TikTok video. So maybe we could do a little bit better job of putting some disclaimers, some resources, something like that. So we're not contributing to people over pathologizing what might be just considered normal behavior or normal reactions to situations. Another thing on that note, um, one of my biggest uh, pet peeves is I think at this point we've talked so much about trauma, which one of my areas of expertise in court and my evaluation work is, is trauma. And I think it's important we talk about it to make people aware of it, provide interventions, resources, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that we've talked about it so much that sometimes it's getting in the public or in the general public, I guess, sometimes it's getting over pathologized where everything nowadays is being considered a trauma where I don't think it should be. Uh, because if we interpret, you know, just everyday adversities or adversities in general, all adversities in general as a trauma, then it could be hurtful to how we heal because how we how we think about a situation or how we um, interpret our situation directly impacts how we respond to it. So if we're calling everything a trauma, then it's saying, well, we're medicalizing it now. We're saying it's a, you know, it's a pr big problem that needs clinical intervention. Whereas if it's an adversity, then, you know, there's an innate ability to heal and move forward not needing to medicalize it, put a label on it, put a diagnosis on it, requiring the help of a mental health professional. But of course, I do think mental health professionals should help in cases of adversity and trauma, but it just kind of gets to the point where I think a lot of things are being over-pathologized, if, yeah. if that makes sense. So I think a little bit more balance would be helpful. Yeah, I agree. I feel like the line is kind of blurred between, while you were bringing that up, I... I had worked with, I, f I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Loftus, Elizabeth Liz Loftus. Out of UC Irvine, I think? Yeah. Yes, I, I don't know her personally, but I'm a fan of her research. Yeah, so I got to, I was in her lab when I went to, when I was in the post-bac program at UCI, and she actually had one class um, pretty much primarily focusing on her work exonerating uh, people that were wrongfully convicted regarding satanic sexual abuse mm -hmm. during like the satanic panic. Mm -hmm. And she, so that, that just reminded me of kind of similarly how people were so fixated on ass assigning a, a diagnosis and really finding a problem kind of out of nothing. So, yeah feel like we we have a, a tendency to we do that in society yes yes that's a great uh that's a great connection and I I love uh her work and she does a lot of work in the area of wrongful uh wrongful I think she does also um not wrongful testimony uh eyewitness testimony eyewitness testimony and yeah. memory issues and all kinds of I love her work it's it's phenomenal so good connection yes yeah I love her she's she's like she wrote one of my letters of recommendation oh, wow. so she, yeah she's she's a very important person and especially to see her as a woman and how much she's accomplished in the field in the time period she's done it when I feel like women weren't really taken seriously in psychology mm -hmm. uh, so it I she's just very I admire her very much Yes, you're going to love our episode coming up. I can't, that's why I can't answer the question more because we have a lot we're going to unpack. So stay tuned. But I got it. No problem. But yes, and, and then, you know, just to add on to the mental health professionals, um, you know, things that sh we are working on changing, I can tell you that right now, too, in the American Academy of Forensic Psychology, we are, and I'm not in the academy, but I say that we because I follow their guidelines as a forensic psychologist. They are revising their specialty guidelines, which I talk about on every episode that I do here, because if you're doing forensic work or interested, you should get to know those guidelines. They, it has been quite some time since they've been updated, and they are being updated as we speak. And I heard, and uh, I heard this from one of the board-certified forensic psychologists I just interviewed, whose interview will probably be dropping next month, a couple weeks, not quite sure. It's in, it's in post-production as we speak. But she mentioned that they are working on actually incorporating 
the use of social media into the guidelines now that that's becoming, you know, a new thing for us in forensic work. So that's, that's helpful too. And I'm sure they might touch on how mental health professionals should conduct themselves as well on the internet and, you know, on platforms, like different social media platforms. Yeah, that's good to hear. Lots of new things coming up. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Very encouraging to hear. Um, Okay, this one's a little more depressing, I guess. Uh, Not depressing, but so we'll start with the worst part. It's what's your least (laughs) favorite part of your job and why? Wow, I think, okay, well, two parts, two things. Uh, The worst part, I wouldn't say it's the worst, it's just like not my favorite, is really doing the other task in private practice. It's because I am in private practice. I, I have to run my own business and doing administrative side of things is not my favorite thing to do. I don't like looking in my accounting books to make sure I'm getting paid. I mean, I, I, I know I want to get paid, but it's not my favorite thing. I want to be there evaluating people, writing reports. But then my next thing I was going to add, the second thing is writing reports, paperwork. Um, but I, I love writing. It's a love-hate relationship. And I'm hoping that some of my colleagues will validate my statements. But um, writing reports, I like the finished product, but the process to get there, I think a lot of us struggle with wanting to make every report perfect. And we spend countless amount of hours researching, revising, and sometimes writing too much because we don't want to forget anything and it just it becomes very time consuming so it's a love-hate relationship but at the end when you finish that product and you give it you know to the attorney or to court and you're like I wrote a beautiful report and this is going to be so helpful you're you know that's the moment where you're like this is why I do what I do I'm it's yeah it's, it's a proud moment but getting to that point is a love-hate relationship but I'm going to ask my colleagues that question on the round table. So we'll see if they validate that. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I did my first like mock ways report. And that was extremely, that was extremely daunting. So I can only imagine to the extent that you have to do to be able to turn it into the, to the courts, especially. It's, I'm sure it's a, a very big task. Yes. Um, let's see if I got the other part of the question is what's your favorite part of your job? I have so many favorite parts. I mean, I'm honestly like sometimes I'm like, wow, am I here? Am I doing what I set out to do? I, I feel very blessed that it has come with many long, tearful nights sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but I'm very blessed to be able to be here and still do what I want to do. So uh, many things are my favorites. I, I, it's hard to choose one. I think being able to, my work with juveniles is so special. I, I love working with my adults too, so any of my adult attorneys out there that I work with, this is not saying adults are second best, but I think sometimes some of my favorite things to do are working with the juveniles, um, especially the ones that are involved in the sex trafficking cases and that I do trauma work, trauma evaluations for. Sometimes it makes such a big impact in their life. And it it does with the adults too. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, but when you can actually see the change in the trajectory of some young person's life because you were able to educate the court on something and then the court was able to make a different decision at the disposition hearing, you know, for example, uh, not returning that youth um, to that group home that was where there was abuse found to have to happen or where they were targeted for sex trafficking or getting them out of the sex trafficking ring, which is really difficult. And it wasn't my job to get them out, but my work was able to contribute towards um, educating the court on what would be best. Not that the court was going to send them back to that ring, but uh, sending them back to an environment that might put them at a vulnerable place so it's those are some of my favorite things to do and and talk about of course when I get juvenile cases too and even adult cases where I'm doing Franklin hearing type of evaluations where we're 
doing kind of a retrospective evaluation, looking back at, um, you know, almost like mitigating factors in adolescence, like things that are transient to adolescence, like not being able to make good decisions and good exercise, good judgment skills because the brain isn't fully grown in and they're more influenced by their peers than, you know, maybe their parents or maybe they have a, a chaotic family home and they were seeking out attention, love, concern, um, really like a, a parent figure, so to speak, in a, in a gang, and they kind of got wrapped up in something they shouldn't have. You know, so all of these factors I get to explain in these kind of reports. I get to do testing where I can actually see sometimes, you know, brain dysfunction in adolescents and adults, and we can see really where the impact of, you know, a head injury, uh, what the impact of a head injury does to a person's behavior what the impact of trauma does to the brain. You know, we know from years and years of research that, you know, significant trauma, even just small amounts of trauma too, just depends, you know, on the person and all, a, a lot of different factors. But we can see that it has structural changes to the brain, structural and functional changes to the brain. So I can see that in testing, in data, not just imaging. Like, we can see that in imaging, but I can see that in my, my testing data and be able to explain you know, how that person's brain is functioning and how then that impacts their behavior, which is, I, I just find so cool and so fascinating. And it really, you know, educates people in the legal system about what's going on. It tells a person's story too. So lots yeah, of favorites. I, I could talk forever. You just tell me to stop. <laughs> I, I agree though. I, I think the same thing about assessments. I love the fact that you get concrete data in front of you that you're able to put towards somewhat explaining why a person functions the way they do I think I I really think the the uh, person's childhood and what they experience and I think that makes such a big impact on how they go through their life so I think any any evidence you can put towards that to explain who they are now, I feel like that's incredible to have access to. Yeah. Seems like such a, yes. a unique thing. Um, let's see. Oh, this I keep segueing perfectly into my next question unintentionally. You're a natural interviewer. I mean, you're oh, going to, you're, you're it's just, a, a, um, it's forecasting your, your future as a, as a forensic evaluator, maybe. It's probably from all the podcasts I already listened to. <laughs> there you go. Yes, exactly. All right. So the other one, so the next question is, how do you prepare for an assessment? Generally, I'll give you an over, overview because each, each assessment's different and requires different um, tools, different uh, procedures I follow beforehand. But, but generally speaking, how I prepare for an assessment, most of the time I'm reviewing records before I go in. I pretty much will have an agreement with the attorney, either a signed uh, forensic retainer and fee agreement done, or I'll have a court order. That's really important to have one of those documents before the work begins. And then, of course, we're discussing the referral questions, so I know what I'm setting out to do before I go and do it, right? So if they want an evaluation on, let's say, competency, I know I'm going in with a certain, you know, maybe set of measures or tests or not so much in competency, but if I'm going in to do a neuropsychological evaluation to look for any type of brain dysfunction or just look at the status of brain functioning, I'm going to go in prepared with a whole lot more measures, test measures. So to prepare for that, I'm talking to the attorney and discussing the referral question I'm asking for records, and hopefully I get them and can review them before I go in for the evaluation. That's always my preference. Sometimes, due to different kinds of circumstances, I may not get them right away, and I may start an evaluation without them, but it really just depends on the situation. It depends on the referral question. I, like For example, I could not go in and do a competency evaluation or an insanity evaluation without having access to those police reports. I mean, I just wouldn't be pr fully prepared. Um, Besides reviewing records and talking with the attorney, you know, I'm making sure I have all my assessment stuff because I often travel and do these evaluations at the jail. So I'm making sure I have all my tests, of course, with me uh, to go to the, the jail. And then on the back end of the evaluation, 
I am touching base, usually doing collecting collateral information, like interviewing family members or friends or treatment providers. That's another thing that uh, we incorporate into an assessment. Got it. That makes sense. I didn't know exactly the order of when you talk to who. So that kind of, it would make sense that you do the, the more useful records first and then kind of seek out additional information after you've conducted your assessment. Definitely. And sometimes records come later because new records are found. So we'll, you know, integrate those. But I definitely bring that up in my conversations with the attorneys first and foremost. I mean, I have a list already I I send out of commonly asked for records or records that would be helpful in SAD evaluation. Do you have access to the records for if you were working for, like, would you get it from both sides? So usually the attorney, in my experience, the attorney retaining you is going to be the attorney providing you records. Okay. Not to say that um, at times I have received records from the other side, but it was, there was no confidentiality involved in the case. So I think it was like a competency case where the court was the client, the the judge was the one requesting the evaluation. And I think I got records from both sides. Okay, that makes sense. I just had to watch a full trial, and I watched uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's because they have his full... Fascinating. Yes, it was... I I had to watch two hours, and I watched way more than two hours. But uh, that was the first case where I was aware of a court court appointed attorney or sorry court appointed forensic psychologist working and so i i was wondering like in that case you would be provided information from both sides so that like that's a good example i'm glad you brought that up yeah i'm not familiar with who did his evaluation um way back when and but sometimes in cases there are multiple experts appointed so yeah. it just depends on, again, what role you have. Some people are appointed as the evaluator, the one doing the evaluation. Sometimes you're appointed as the just a straight expert witness where you're coming in to testify on a subject matter. So there, it depends on your role. Um, but usually when I'm retained by defense counsel, defense counsel will get me records. I, I rarely will hear from the prosecutor. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. There was also, I think there was like eight of them that testified all together. Sure. Forensic psychiatrists. They oh, were all yes. psychiatrists too, which I, mm-hmm. I found that interesting. But I guess the medical aspect probably gives them the a little more clout in that case. I'm not sure. You know, I, I'm not too familiar. I'd have to watch some of his, uh, who the doctors were and, and what their role was. Again, I don't recall offhand, but... You know, forensic psychiatrists are appointed on cases. They are they can get training to do things like competency evaluations or not guilty by reason of insanity evaluations. But I don't know if I would say that they have any more clout over a psychologist um, if it's not also incorporating a, a medical aspect to it. Um, they actually go out and get subsequent training, you know, for to do these kind of evaluations the same way we do. I think we probably maybe focus on it a little bit more in grad school maybe than they do because they're going to medical school and then maybe doing a forensic, um, what do you call it? I I don't know what it is in their their terminology, but maybe um, equivalent to their postdoc. So, but I know that they do, where I have seen some of their most invaluable work is when they come on and they're retained as a, substance use expert or something also involving you know more of a medical aspect and they're making opinions on that I've seen a lot of toxicologists in testify in trials and it's phenomenal I mean I've done a lot of research on substance use disorders and their impact on the brain and brain's functioning and the brain systems but that toxicologist I mean they know a little bit more of the science than I do the actual biology of it so very helpful so it just depends on what they're asked to do what their scope is um scope of practice and the role that they're being assigned yeah that makes sense I was confused why they all were forensic psychiatrists because I was like wait I thought what happens to the psychologists in this because I would have figured 
there would have been more psychologists that would have testified, especially because it was if whether or not he was insane. So I, I was like, oh, this would be the, the prime area, but Forensic maybe it was different. I think they might have. I mean, if you look at the history, I mean, it might be a good subject area to cover for a podcast is the history um, of forensic psychiatrists, you know. I think psychologists have actually been around longer, not forensics specifically, but the degree PhD, I think, has been around longer than the medical doctor degree, the MD. And I just, this is anecdotal information. I heard this from another um, research-based psychologist who was providing some talk on another podcast. Ironically, I listen to lots of podcasts. And she was mentioning some in her talk somewhere, and it had nothing to do with forensic psychology, but it had to do with the history of um, doctors, various kinds of doctors. And she, I heard her mention that the PhD has been around longer than the medical doctor. But I, I don't know. I mean, I thought, I, I, when I think back, I think forensic psychiatrists or psychiatrists have been around for quite some time. So I don't know. I'd have, it'd be a great history episode, I guess. Because, you know, Freud, I think, was, a, was an MD, you know. And many people back then were that we hear about in the history of psychology were MD. So I'm going to look that up. I might make that an episode. Yeah, I think that would be a very interesting episode because yeah. I was I, I've never talked about it or heard about it in school. They don't really talk about like where when the two converged or what necessarily makes them different other than the fact that they have the medical aspect to it. But yeah, I think that's I think that I'd listen. And maybe I can get a maybe I can get one of the forensic psychiatrists from our local panel. Maybe I'll email some of them and see if I can get them on to give some of their expertise. Maybe their training is a lot different. I don't know. Yeah. Good. Think, good. Yeah, good topic that I might do. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I would definitely listen to that one. Yeah, let's get someone. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that up here. I got it. All right. Let's see. Um, oh, this one. How do you handle uh, resistant or difficult clients? Well, that is a very good question. In my line of work as a and as an evaluator, I would say that you know it's a, I, I use all the information available to me. So all the behavior observations, you know, if they're being resistant to my line of questioning or defensive, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, a little bit in my mind, like, why they're responding the way they are, but, you know, how practically I'm, I'm handling it, you know, I'm not going to push someone to do something that they don't want to do. I mean, I'm not, that's just not our role. If they don't want to participate, they have the right not to participate. Now, sometimes they do have a court order, or there is a court order in place that they are, you know, court order to an evaluation, but still, even at that, they have the right to refuse, and if they do, that's what's documented in the report. And obviously, that probably won't be very helpful for them. So, they some of them tend to think about that. Um, but and and that's what I, I do tell them. I give them that's part of my spiel when I go in there to do the evaluation in the first place, is letting them know that I I, I read them the purpose of the evaluation, um, limited limited. Uh, limited um, confidentiality, right? I'm a mandated reporter. I still have to report out child abuse, elder abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And I ask them if they agree to proceed, given all the things they told them. And so, you know, some of them say, most of them, 99% of the people say yes. The 1% that say no, maybe they have other concerns and they might be very valid concerns. So sometimes they want to speak with their attorney again. I don't consider them difficult. I guess it just really depends on how you define difficult. And so sometimes in our field, it could be someone that's refusing to do the evaluation. Or sometimes people would consider someone who is not cooperating with the evaluation, like just giving, you know, half, kind of half answers, like making it kind of difficult and um, like giving evasive answers that some people can think that's difficult. I just use that as, you know, behavior observations and document that and I help I use that to help me make my opinions of course in line with other sources of data Um, so I go with it I don't push them I respect their wishes and and I just see they're responding that way for a reason it's not my job to investigate all the time now sometimes people think that 
or they might say difficult could mean malingering. Well, that's just a response style. I could recommend further evaluation on that. Sometimes when I find my juveniles might be a little hesitant or might be, quote, a little difficult, you know, you have to understand that they've been through a lot. And even people in the adults in criminal justice system, they've been through a lot. I mean, it's hard for them to share their life story sometimes with a stranger. Um, they want to know how it's going to help them. Sometimes they worry it can hurt them. There's all kinds of reasons. So I try to level with them, give them as much information as I can, and meet them where they're at. And sometimes, like I said with my juveniles, I'll come back. Maybe we can do this another day. Maybe today's not a good day for them. With my adults, I mean, I if I have time, of course, I'm going to offer the same, but usually adults are a little bit more, mm, what's the right word? They are, uh, you know, they're not having, you know, developmental problems like the juveniles are having, you know, hormones raging and being in a correctional facility or having such a big significant stressor over their head, you know, jail in itself is a, is a stressor for, for most people, but they have different set of problems than juveniles. So, I mean, I'll, I'll see if maybe coming back on another day is going to be better for them. I mean, I can't do that all the time and I can't do it multiple times, but I'll try. Um, and if it's really not working out, um, if it's very difficult where it becomes of a safety issue, then we terminate the interview right then and there because safety trumps everything. So, couple do you have, scenarios. this is more of me just personally interested in the fact that you're at the jails itself. When you're doing the assessments, is there, what, what are they, how, are, how do they keep you safe? Like the jails, how do the jails? Yeah, well, well, because you're you're sitting there with, uh, I mean, who knows what kind of an offender, and you know, especially being a woman, I'm always concerned about how things, like if I'm going to be safe in certain situations. That's a very good question to ask, and then really important question for people to ask themselves going into this field. And again. My roundtable with my fellow <laughs> lady psychologists, forensic psychologists, we are going to touch on safety for sure, especially as a woman. But I will let you know this um, to answer your question about how do the jails keep me safe? Well, every jail is going to be different. And I'm in LA County, and I don't think I've been, oh, I've done a couple evaluations for in custody folks out in San Bernardino. I believe, and Riverside, mostly in L.A. County. So all the jails are going to operate differently. But in my experience, they've all done a phenomenal job with me. I have, in custody, I think I have never worried about my safety in custody. Uh, inmates are typically, um, at, at the jails I've been to, the inmates are usually cuffed to the large square table where I'm interviewing them and testing them at. They're cuffed with at least one hand, a set of handcuffs, right? One hand is cuffed, the other cuff is going to a fixture on the table. And there's deputies nearby. Sometimes at the jail, if they know a particular inmate is dangerous or maybe unstable, I guess would be a better word, or could be a combination of both. They say they have to be seen at their cell door. So meaning oh. they're not going to come out. You're going to them. So you have to be okay with that because then you're going right into their housing module. You can't really do psychological testing from the door, but you can conduct an interview sometimes. I mean, it gets really loud in the jail. Other times they may bring them out and they may have both their hands cuffed behind their back, you know. So it depends on the situation, but I... I do feel that I am probably more safe there doing evaluations than I am in my office sometimes. I mean, my office, I generally feel safe because we practice good safety measures and guidelines, but it's a little bit more unpredictable here because I don't have security around, whereas where you're in the jail, you've got nothing but deputies around. Now, they're not in always in your interview because we do try to have some some amount of privacy, but also keeping in mind some the safety procedures, which is why they're if, if you're in the room with the inmate by yourself, they're cuffed. 
Got it. If you're out, you know, I've been out on the floors in the housing units and they're not cuffed. They're probably lower level offenders and there's a minimum of five, six, seven deputies around. Even when we're in a room alone, the deputies are right behind you. They're just maybe behind the glass. So, yeah, yeah th- that makes sense. I mean, they're obviously they wouldn't put you in a situation where you're not no, safe because no. it doesn't benefit anyone in that no. situation. And that's their job. Their number one job yeah. is safety, is keeping people safe, including the inmates, keeping them safe at the jail. And so there's other things we do too, you know, and we, we'll talk about this later on the podcast and the the roundtables, you know, we are taught, at least in our in our training, and I know some of my colleagues coming on, I, I've trained with them, I've worked with them before, so we were taught similar things, but, you know, we all sit, uh, woman or man, doesn't matter, but we all sit with our us closest to the door, and the defendant or the inmate further away, so if anything happens, we are, have better access, closer access to the door to leave, so that's one component of safety, and you do that at the jail, You know, I've had to tell the deputies many times, you know, they might have the room set up where I'm sitting on that side and the inmates sitting on this side and they think it's all all good because their inmates cuffed. And I'm like, "Mm, no, I am going to sit on that side. The inmates get to sit on that side. Can you move the table? And so it's really just being assertive with custody staff. And this is, hey, this is what how I feel safe. This is what I prefer. And I have never had a deputy tell me no. So. Uh, but that's in my experience. I can't speak for others. But I do, you know, I assert myself because at the end of the day, like, I'm I'm going to stay safe and I'm going home. And that's, deputies understand that because that's kind of where they come from too, that at the end of the day, they want to go home safe. So I, I feel great about going to the to the jail. Absolutely. I have not had problems. Um, I've had, I've had one, I've had one inmate that was not very happy with me, um, but I also luckily didn't have to do any testing, and he was seen behind glass. I read his prior reports with female evaluators. We met behind glass. All we, we did was an interview. So, you know, again, assess your situation before you go. You know, if you can do it from behind glass because there might be um, potential safety issues or aggression, you know, and you don't feel comfortable sitting face-to-face, I mean, if you can do that, great. Just, again, assess your situation. That's good to know. Yeah, we'll it's talk about we'll talk about too, like you know, self defense classes and stuff like that. Um, we're really big on that. I know some of my colleagues and I are. I mean, I I've done several specific women specific defense classes. You know, with different organizations. I shoot regularly. I you know learn to how to um, take care of myself in situations uh, using different kinds of things like. In my self-defense class, not only did they help you become familiar with a gun and learn how to shoot, but also, and that's, you know, just safety measures on a different side of things, but um, also to learn to use pepper spray and just so you're familiar with things. Not so you have them necessarily. If you don't want them, you don't have them. But if someone approaches you with it, you know, that was my concern. What if someone comes to me with a gun and it gets thrown on my floor? Like, what do I do? You know, so in that regard, like how to operate a gun, right? So you're not picking it up, going to hurt yourself, you know, right? You know how to handle it. Because that's that's a very real possibility in our line of work. You know, people could come to our office with those kinds of weapons or or a knife. That was that was probably the scarier thing in my self-defense class. It's like, how do you defend yourself against somebody with a knife, right? So learning how to do that. And, and this these skills taught in these classes – not just for our line of work, but just for you in general, right? As a person, as a woman, in, in general, like leaving your office, walking down the street, doesn't even have to involve work. It could be on a Saturday, right? <laughs> so how can you take care of yourself if you're jogging or walking alone, right? All kinds of things. So I'm really big about taking self-defense classes and uh, learning to protect yourself. Um, the use of a flashlight, most helpful thing, because give you a sneak peek about this episode right you have a flashlight and you literally can put that up to somebody and it will blind them right as you're walking up so I have mine in my hand when I walk out of my office I actually have my keys with me or else I'd show you I have a little one on my key ring that's bright as heck and then I have a bigger one that fits in like my pencil case but it's still not a giant one 
I I hold them in my hand when I leave, well, at least my little one, when I leave my office in case anyone approaches me at my office. Like, le- less a c- person that came in for evaluation, but it could be a complete stranger, you know? So always be prepared. But be aware of your surroundings, not to make anyone paranoid, but just be aware, you know? Because if you're aware, you probably could, you know, think of a plan. You, you could run. You're just, you're being aware of your surroundings, the best way to keep yourself safe. So, but I digress. I digress. No more, no more sneak peeks on the episode. (laughs) All right. I'll try not to inadvertently ask questions about it. You're fine. You're fine. Uh, Let's see. Uh, This one's, how do you maintain positive mental health? um, Like distressing from your job, given the clientele that you work with? Super important. Very good question. I think for me personally, it is taking time off every couple months. And this is talked about in our field of forensic psychologists. There's quite a bit of discussion on some of our Facebook groups and our listservs about this exact issue. We deal with some heavy stuff. We deal with trauma, loads and loads of trauma. And we, although we don't, we don't, see it we we may not see it in front of our face but we read about it we may not see that person over and over again like therapists do but we're seeing other offenders or victims right in our evaluations just over and over and over again right and so we carry that too we need a way to disconnect and and balance it out and move that energy out I'm a very big energy person so I feel like I do take a lot of that in so I can understand the person, make my analysis with all the points of data, and then write a report. But I'm also like, I'm like, I, I, you can't unhear things. You can't unread police reports. So you have to disconnect and move that energy out. Sometimes there's such heinous stories. Sometimes you're never going to forget about it. But you can really, like, sit with it and move it out, you know, not sit with it too long, not dwell on it and think about it too, too much. But it's happen- it happens. We're, we're humans. We, we care. We're compassionate, especially in the helping field. So I like to move it out. I like to try to get a workout in every day just to move my body. I like to do consultation with colleagues so I can say, oh, my gosh, like, what kind of self-care practices are you doing? How do you disconnect? Look at people, you know, how people, other people do it in our field. And then actually, for me personally with this work, it is it is very heavy, especially working with kids and trauma. I take off time every quarter. So I plan my business in quarters, how many evaluations I take at a time. I also make sure that I plan to take at least one to two weeks off every quarter. You know, that's four times a year. And people think, God, four times two weeks. That's eight weeks that you take off a year. Most people will get two weeks, right? Three weeks, maybe four weeks if you've worked in a career for so long, right? If you're working for mm-hmm. a government agency. If you're working for yourself, I mean, I get it. We don't get paid if, unless we're working. But I also know that I'm not doing my best work if I'm not de-stressed. So I'm making a priority to take off a week or two every quarter. And I shut my office down. I mean, sometimes my assistant takes off different weeks than I do, and my psych assistants take off different weeks, but we all take time off. You have to. You have to recharge, go see, like, other things, get connected, reconnected back with nature, and then get back into doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. That's how I I'm do it. I'm a big found fan of boundaries, so I boundaries? think learning, yeah. learning professional boundaries is, is going to be very essential for – for me it's it's this a struggle because you're used to being a student and then you go right into working and you want to build your career but work will always be there all right i think we are at the last question yay yeah uh what are some general tips and recommendations you'd give to someone starting out in the field you know, that's the question I ask all my guests at the end of their interviews. <laughs> so I would, I'm going to echo some of their sentiments in that some of my, my top tips in getting involved or getting started in the field. One, um, start in your undergrad year, get involved in research. 
so important. I wish I would have got involved more in research. It really does help you build your CV and applying to grad school because in grad school they really want to see that you can one excel at academics but also two that you can conduct research conduct it read it write it understand it so I would encourage people to get involved in research and professional organizations even as a student so I started getting involved as a grad student and I felt I was late to the game but I really wasn't but I felt that way because at some of the conferences I was attending, there were undergraduate dinners for like John Jay College in New York. Give them a, a free shout out. They, they put together a wonderful dinner and a, a meetup at one of these conferences. I believe it's at the APLS. They typically attend and they come in heavy numbers. So I would encourage people to get to start networking early. It's really in this field, it's a small field. Even across the United States, small field. We all tend to know each other at some point or know of that person. And you'll learn to, you know, your work um, and your business will be built on your referral system and your support system, right? So you never know when that person you went to grad school with back then could send referrals your way. And it could be that one referral that just snowballs your practice into being busy, right? So mm-hmm. networking is so important. Really, building relationships are so important with your professors, your fellow students in class. Just build, build, build. Get involved in professional organizations like the American Psych- Psychology Law Society, right? Forensic Mental Health Association of California. Disclaimer, I am on the education committee for that, so I am a bit biased. But great organization. It was one of my favorite organizations as a student, even now as a working professional, but as a student, they're so student-friendly. So uh, get involved in research, professional organizations, network, focus on your schoolwork, you know, really learn the material, and reach out. Don't, don't just stop because one person says no. A lot of professionals like myself were really busy. Sometimes we don't get back to you for a couple weeks, or if we say no, we don't have time, it's not personal. We are just really, really busy. So just keep going, right? Just reach out. You never know who will respond, yes or no. And if you get a no, just keep going. You'll find someone that says yes. I have that happen with the interview. Right, right. Yeah. Perfect example. And I think it worked out great in the end. So, I, yeah, I definitely agree to keep going. Absolutely. And I agree with you about the whole research in grad school process I had that problem go transferring from a community college to then a Cal State none of those schools necessarily give you an opportunity to practice research you learn about it but I never really had the opportunity to conduct any research so when I I I went to UCI specifically for their post-bac program because it was so much emphasized on research and I actually had the opportunity to conduct my own research study relevant to COVID which I I felt like it was a a really incredible chance to do so I I really recommend I love research I'm a big research nerd so I love yeah Yeah, I mean and people looking for research sometimes like you mentioned if it, it might be hard to find an undergrad if you're not at like a major university I guess that is heavy in research reach out it doesn't matter what school you're at if you're if you're at um even if you're a junior college I mean some of those professors community college some of those professors there are putting out research so again network with your professors ask them if there's anything you can help on if they're conducting any type of research some of them conduct research in their if they have a practice outside or they run labs outside of the school again your school is just where you make the connection if you're at a four-year university and they have grad programs, which most, most of them do, go above your major program and go into the grad schools and reach out to the professors in grad school, which are a lot of times, at, like at UCI, UCLA, USC, people teaching grad school programs are probably in, um, or I'm sorry, I'm mixing them up. People in PhD programs, sometimes part of their tuition 
gets covered if they teach undergrad, right? So they're running labs. Mm -hmm. And grad students, like what we go through, PhD, Sadie, you have to conduct a dissertation, at least at most schools. So find a grad student that's conducting dissertation research and ask them how you can help. I had two undergrads help me with mine, and I just I felt so lucky that they approached me because it's so helpful to have someone assist you in collecting data just and organizing the data. Reach out to the grad schools. Ask the professors. Ask the grad students, hey, how can I help you? That's how you get your name on stuff. Yeah. I worked with uh, – that was how my first research opportunity was helping a Ph.D. student finish her dissertation and I I loved it and I know she loved it because I was helping her so it really benefited the both of us so exactly it's it's a mutual really recommend that yeah beneficial for sure well thank you for everything I really appreciate you taking the time like you said I know forensic psychologists are very busy that's we are we are and I feel like it was really beneficial to get an inside perspective. I've I've talked to several forensic psychologists and I feel like every time I pick up something new that I can take with me. So I I'm just very very grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk to you about all of this. Of course, and thank you for uh being the reverse interviewer for the podcast episode. Hopefully Thanks, I hope other people hope find both. it helpful. Yeah. Well, Thank you for being here. I am going to hit this outro music. And then if you have any other questions, feel free to email me. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Caroline. Take care. The Forensic Psychologist Podcast is a project of Vienna Psychological Group. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and giving a five-star rating. It helps get the show out there to students and others interested in forensic psychology. You can find the references and resources mentioned in the episodes below in the show notes. And make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Dr. Nicole Vienna for more information on upcoming episodes and all things forensic psychology. 